Mighty God. Uh, Lord, you know that uh, <clears throat> you know that I'm prepared to be a fool for you. But Lord, what I do not want to be is a distraction from you. And so, Lord, whilst I am very excited about what you have shown me in your word and in my study and in my time of preparing, I pray that this will be nothing compared to what you're going to plant in the hearts of everybody here, both here on site and everyone who's joining us online this morning. Come, Holy Spirit, we make this an upper room this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Our foundation verse for this whole series, John chapter 14, verse 26, says this, but when the Father sends the, the advocate as my representative, last week, uh, Mike Burrows from Open Doors literally told us story after story about how the advocate literally was the, the Holy Spirit was literally the advocate for people who were standing before judici- uh, judges or police, or authorities who could literally choose to take their life or not, and yet the Holy Spirit stepped in. That is an advocate. But when the Father sends the advocate as my representative, this is Jesus speaking, that is the Holy Spirit. He will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I have told you. Let's leap forward into Acts chapter 2, the great book on the power and the anointing and the arrival of the Holy Spirit. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, Everyone say, fully come. I don't think we understand those two words. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. And one sat upon each of them and they were all filled. No one missed out. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. I really love, I really love the personal nature of the Holy Spirit. We've learned that in the last four weeks from a personal point of view that the Holy Spirit is very personal. He's very intimate. He's very one-on-one. And there appeared tongues of fire and one sat on each of them. No one missed out. No one missed out who was in the upper room. Let me just add that on there. They were in a position to receive. Lock that one away for the end of this message. They were in a place and they were in a position. They were in a posture and they were in an attitude to receive. And they were all filled. You know what? This, this wasn't the early church. What happened here in this upper room in the book of, in the book of Acts chapter 2, this wasn't the early church. This was the first church. This was the birthplace of the church. This was the church that Jesus planted. I can't think of anyone better to plant a church, actually. This was the church that Jesus established, and it started with a boom. Talk about a Big Bang Theory. You know, I've often pictured this, you know, the, the, in the book of Genesis, where it says that the that creation itself was formless and void. It was dark. It was chaos, as, as Julian preached a couple of weeks ago, and the Holy Spirit hovered over it. And then God said, could you imagine that, let there be, through the cosmos? I mean, big bang, hallelujah, maybe, who knows, but it would have been huge. 
Acts chapter 2, a wind blew, a fire fell, a baptism happened, the Holy Spirit imparted gifts, and these gifts were taken out of the upper room and into a city, and what happened? 3,000 people got saved. I said to a good friend of mine who is uh, many, many years longer in ministry than me, I said, I've never seen 3,000 people get saved when I've preached. You know what he said? He came to me with the word of the Lord and he said, when was the last time you preached to 3,000 unsaved people? I was like, oh, that's a point. But it didn't stop there. Let's move to Acts chapter 3. Peter and John were on their way to church. On their way to the take past this place called the Gate Beautiful. There's a guy who's crippled from birth and they declare the word of the Lord over him. He gets healed and he comes into the house of God leaping and praising. That was a normal day in the life of church. They were on their way. So my challenge is to you next week on your way to church. If that's not enough, Acts chapter 4, guess what? The salvation count is now up to 5,000. I've challenged the church ministers here in town. You know, Over the years of, of leading a church here, I've had people go, oh, do we need another church in Bloomin? You know, I've seen churches come and get planted and some have stayed and some haven't. But I said to them this, if every single one of us in the Ministers Association had a Sunday morning of attendance of 1,000 people, that's everyone, every one of us had 1,000 people rocking up on a Sunday, guess what? Over half the population of Blenheim still wouldn't know God. Is there room? You bet there's room. If that's not enough, Acts chapter 8. Paul, who originally was Saul, was a Pharisee, starts to persecute the church. The disciples scatter. Guess what? So does the gospel. It spreads and it goes to Samaria. And there's a guy, Philip, who's full of the Holy Spirit. He starts to preach and signs and wonders are following. And Peter and Peter and the boys hear about it. So they rock up to Samaria and they start ministering in the power of the Holy Spirit. And Simon, who's a sorcerer, who makes a living from casting spells and doing magic. He gets paid to do magic. He sees the real power and he offers to pay for it. Peter turns around and goes, you and your money perish. This is not what, this cannot be bought. If that's not enough in Acts chapter eight, we get Philip. Philip, God says, head on down the road. He sees an Ethiopian on a, on a chariot reading the word of God aloud. And he asks him, do you know what you're reading? And he goes, how would I know if no one would teach me? So he gets up there and he preaches and he shares with this Ethiopian about the gospel and, and about repent and be baptized. By the way, if you've not been baptized, we want to baptize you. So we want to do a baptism service in the, sometime in the next few weeks. So if you've not been baptized, it's a command from Jesus. I'll just throw that one out there for free. Anyway, so they see this. I'm guessing what must have only been like a puddle or a spring or something on the side of the road. The Ethiopian goes, what's stopping me getting baptized? Philip says nothing. They pull up the chariot. Oh boy. They jump off. He baptizes him. And guess what? This minute the guy comes up out of the water, Philip is translated by the Holy Spirit. He's picked up, bang, and dropped in another village. That was a normal day in church. Oh, if I disappear, just be happy because I'll be preaching somewhere else. Oh my goodness. I think I'll be more surprised than the people I end up standing in front of. But I can't wait. You know what? If that's not enough, Acts chapter 10, Peter gets supernaturally called by the Holy Spirit through visions to go to an Italian's house, in a Gentile's house, a Roman 
army officer's house. His name's Cornelius. And he goes, what am I doing here? I'm not even permitted to come into your house. And so Cornelius said, well, this dude who I'm guessing was an angel said, I need to call for you. And Peter goes, oh, that's interesting. He called for me too. He starts preaching. And while he's preaching, the Holy Spirit falls, fills. And these Gentiles start to speak in other tongues. Peter goes, this tells me that this is for everybody. If that's not enough, let's move on to Acts chapter 12. Peter gets thrown in prison. Guess what happens? The church prays. <gasps> the church prays. Peter is asleep, literally shackled between two guards, and he gets a kick in the foot. There's an angel of the Lord standing there, and he says, come with me. Suddenly, the ping, ping, ping. all the chains break off. He gets up, he goes, put your sandals on, walks towards the door, and a door goes, and he's like, whoa. Walks out. He heads to where the church is praying and he knocks on the door. Rhoda comes to the door, opens up the door and goes, nah, it can't be you. Shuts the door and goes back inside. And she goes inside and they say, who is the door? And they, she goes, oh, some dude that looks like Peter. Come on, church, when you pray, do you expect to get what you're praying for? I'm probably going to get just a little excited this morning, okay? Okay, is that all right? Confirmation, please. Please. <laughs> If that's not enough, Paul and Silas, they're in prison. And not just in prison, they're in the darkest, most deepest dungeon hole. They're chained and they're in stocks and it's midnight. It's dead. It's like, it's like pure dark. Anybody been caving? Splunking? You've gone right underground, you turned your lights off? Pure dark. That's where Paul and Silas were. What do they do? They decide to praise and worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Suddenly there's an earthquake. And the scriptures say all the doors throw open, all the chains fall off. Now, they don't call New Zealand the shaky isles for nothing. We've, been in a, we've spent a good big chunk of a night underneath our dinner table while the house did a Michael Jackson all over the back lawn. <laughs> now, I get doors and windows getting thrown open because buildings, but chains falling off? How does that happen? And then... The, the prison guard, who was under threat of life, if he lost anyone, goes, oh my goodness, they've all escaped. He's about to take his own life. But at the scriptures, and here's another mind-blowing thing. In the dark, Paul goes, it's all good. We're all here. How did he know that this guard was so stressed out he was going to take his own life? Holy Spirit. The guard comes in, takes him to his home, dresses his wounds, and he leads the entire family, a whole household to the Lord. If that's not enough, carry on with Paul. He's, he's traveled to uh, Ephesus. He's been on a preaching tour. He's in Ephesus. Timothy's got a church there. And he starts to preach. Holy Spirit falls and is recorded to have unusual miracles where Paul would pray over handkerchiefs and aprons and people would take them home and lay them on or next to someone who said, and they get healed. This is a normal day in church. If that's not enough, Paul, his travels carry on, takes him to Troas. And he gathers in a, in a place, in a house, three-story house, the scriptures say, and he preaches until midnight. <laughs> I checked the batteries on my belt pack this morning, and there's three bars. And Doug goes, oh, that only limits you to an hour and a half. I get really excited at that. Paul preaches to midnight, and there's a young fellow, his name's Eutychus. He's sitting on a windowsill. He falls asleep. He falls out of the third-story window, and he dies. 
I don't want anyone to die while I'm preaching. But then Paul goes down, prays over him by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's supernaturally raised from the dead. What does Paul do? He has a little bit of supper and then he preaches till sunup. Anybody got anything on for the rest of the day and night? I'm feeling really excited about this. <laughs> if that's not enough, Paul then goes on a ship and he gets shipwrecked. And he ends up on this island, which we find through the scriptures is the island of Malta. They build a fire on a beach and a viper comes out of the firewood and latches onto his hand. And it's a, it's a nasty poisonous snake. Everyone goes, oh, he's done. Paul shakes it off into the fire and he lives. They initially think he's a god, so they're going to worship him. He goes, no, 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 I'm not God. No, 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 I'm not God. He prays for the, I think it's the mayor's mum or wife, or some official in the city. They get healed. The gospel gets preached into Greece and then into... In the 10 years that the book of Acts covers, the church was on fire. It was active. It was spreading. It was growing. And all through the scriptures, it says, and the Lord added to them daily. You know what? I think we'd all like God to add to us daily as long as we don't have to do anything. You'll find out that that's not the formula. <laughs> this is the sort of Holy Spirit movement. This is a sort of outpouring of the Holy Spirit that makes sin uncomfortable. This is the power of the Holy Spirit that makes humanistic thinking and humanistic wills and desires unacceptable. And it compels people to search for the truth that is hidden in the Word of God. We know by the Word of God that Jesus is coming back and He's not coming back as a baby. He's coming back as a victorious, triumphant I'm coming back to get my own king. He's coming back for those who are his beloved, those who declare Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, repented of sins, baptized. And I, I just wonder, I'd like to suggest this morning, I don't think he's coming back for a church that's any less powerful than the one he planted. I believe that we have, no, I believe we must be a Holy Spirit-filled church, a church that represents the church that Jesus established. I've been, in, I've been doing this a while now, been involved in church my entire life. I got saved on the 16th of July, 1982. So just in a few days' time, it's my 40th Jesus birthday. And I have seen throughout the years of just being a young, annoying, rebellious punk to just being an annoying, rebellious pastor. No, um, uh, no, uh, yeah, I've, I've seen throughout the years. Honestly, you know, they describe children who are born to army people who, or military people who get posted. They call them military brats. I'm a church brat. My family went to every Protestant church there is on the market. Not through... Uh, just being, being not planted is just through a whole bunch of different things. Our story is quite colorful. Um, but you know what? I've seen people get offended about the smallest things in church. I've seen people get offended with where the piano sits. I've seen people get offended with the color of curtains. I've seen people get offended if it's not warm enough. I've seen people get offended if it's too warm. 
I've seen people get offended if the music's too loud. I've seen people get offended if the music's too so soft, too fast, too slow, repeated too many times. If you have a problem with songs being repeated, wait till you get to heaven. You will sing, be singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty for the rest of eternity. Just ask the cherubim. But at, back at the beginning, if someone got offended by the Pentecostal church and they said, I'm over Pentecost, I'm going to find another church, guess what? There wasn't one. If they said, I'm over Pentecost, I'm going to go and look for a more traditional church, guess what? There wasn't one. People have described Pentecostalism as the new 19th century expression of faith. No, it's not. The Pentecostal church is the oldest denomination on the planet. I want you to think about that. The church started on the day of Pentecost. This is not a new doctrine. We believe that Jesus is alive. They believed it. And some of them saw him. We believe that Jesus baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Not only did they believe it, they got it first. You know, over the years, it's been really, really interesting. I've had a number of people um, come up to me. I mean, genuinely passionate about church, genuinely passionate about the things of the Holy Spirit. And this is what they've said. I just wish, or why can't we be a Book of Acts church? My response is, are you sure? Are you really, really sure? You know what the book of Acts church? The book of Acts church, that church was on fire. That church was deeply committed to the apostles' teaching and not swayed by the latest woke sense of what is acceptable. That church was totally connected to each other and everyone. That church was often uncomfortable. That church was prepared to be persecuted. That church was genuine in its reverence and its fear of God. People died for lying to the Holy Spirit. Are you sure? Being sold out, like I mean totally sold out for God, is not for the faint-hearted. In this nation, I've literally had immigrants ask me, why, when it comes to church attendance or churches being planted, why, where is everybody? Why aren't there more churches and everything? And one day, uh, I was literally verbally accosted by a very, very passionate South African man. <laughs> why? <laughs> And like, there was just a tone in his voice that I thought, you know what, I've got to find an answer for this guy. I actually need to go before God and find an answer for him. And so I did. Next Sunday, I came up to him. His name was James. I said, James, I think I've got an answer for you. He goes, okay, what is it, pastor? And I said, where you come from, if you don't have Jesus in your life, you're sunk. The literal, the stress and the danger and the threat of ABCDEFGHIJ. It's very real, it's every single day. In New Zealand, you can live a very comfortable life without God. We have no idea what persecution is in this country. 
we live in paradise compared to many, many nations around the world. But because of that, it's no less important. It's in actual fact, it's probably even more important that you hear what I'm teaching this morning. Otherwise, we can, we, you know, that classic Kiwi, she'll be right, bro. That's how we'll live. But actually, she'll be right doesn't mix with the Word of God. She'll be right has no place in moving an anointing of the Holy Spirit. Today, this message is about the church. We've spent four weeks looking about our personal connection. This is about the church that has the outworking and the manifestation of the Holy Spirit happening, working, breathing, flowing through the church. So those who are taking notes, five reasons the church needs the power of the Holy Spirit. I've run off a bunch of notes of these, of my notes are out on the resource table. If they run out and people want more, I can do that again. Because we need to get this. Here's the first reason. First reason the church needs the power of the Holy Spirit. It's biblical. It's in the Bible. <laughs> the Apostle Paul preached it, and I love this. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. When I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters, I didn't use lofty words or impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan. For I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except for Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. Let me just pause right there. That there is the epicenter of everything, who he is and what he did. Jesus Christ, the son of the living God who came to earth as a human, who died on in our place for the, pay, the price for our sins that none of us could pay, died on the cross and three days later rose again, now seated at the right hand of the Father, having sent the Holy Spirit, the advocate. Who he is, what he's done. That there is the core and the center of the gospel. I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. Verse 3, I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling. And my message and my preaching were very plain. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, got to remember, this is Paul who was raised in the highest school. He was taught in the highest school from a young, 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 young boy. This dude knew his stuff. He could quote the entire Torah. He could quote verbatim the Septuagint, the first five books of the Bible. He knew scripture reference, verse cross-reference, and the links. But he chose, rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, he could do it. I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. I did this so you would trust not in human wisdom, but in the power of God. And the people of the time and the people of now have chosen to trust in human wisdom and ignore the power of God. Look, just go on Instagram. There is more human wisdom than you can poke a stick at. People are making money off sowing human, human wisdom all through Instagram. And some of them are just clowns. But they have huge followings. People think they're wise. But Paul, who could have done all of that quite well, chose to trust in the power of God. You know, theologians have uh, categorized the nine gifts of the Holy Spirit in the book of um, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And there, it lists the nine gifts of the Holy Spirit. Well, I'm not teaching specifically about the gifts this morning, but so I'm not going to unpack each of them. But they've, they've, theologians have put them into three categories. The, the first three are gifts of utterance. 
These are gifts that say something. The second one is gifts of power. These are gifts that do something. The third one is gifts of revelation. These are gifts that reveal something. Gifts that say, gifts that do, and gifts that reveal. Cautiously and with care, I would like to suggest this morning that if there's nothing being said, if there's nothing being done, and there's nothing being revealed, I wonder if the Holy Spirit's even welcome in the meeting. John chapter 16, verses 13 and verse 8. And I'm going to read them in that reverse order like that for a reason. John 16, 13 says this, But when the Spirit of when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on His own. He will speak only what He hears, and He will tell you what is yet to come. Ooh, I like that. He will tell you what is yet to come. Verse 8, we jump back a few verses, it says this, And when he comes, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. Come on, let's just be real. We're all pretty keen to know what's to come. We're all pretty keen for that. But being convicted of sin, being convicted and told of God's righteousness and being prompted in our thought and in our heart about the final judgment before God? Not so much. We're not too keen for that. I fear that in some cases, we've actually begged the Spirit of God to stay away from us so that we can have a tame version of church, a safe version of church without His unexpected interruptions. I read a I'm sorry, I listened to a podcast many years ago of a speaker. He was invited to speak in a church. It was in America. He was invited to speak in a church, so he went and he preached. It was a great weekend. He went away. Whilst he was traveling home, the Holy Spirit said, go back next weekend. Okay, so he was so, he was so in tune with God that he knew that voice and he wasn't going to disobey it, so he did. He rocked up. He rocked up in this church again, second weekend in a row, and the pastor goes... Why are you here? He goes, Holy Spirit told me I had to come back. And he goes, okay, better get in the pulpit. So he gets up and preaches. On his way home, Holy Spirit says to him, go back. Okay. Third week in a row, he rocks up. He's sitting in the front row, and the power of the Holy Spirit was tangible, like as in like physically feelable. And it's time for the message, and the pastor of the church looks at him and goes, well, you're here. And he's sitting in the front row, and at this point, he's terrified. He looks at the pastor of the church. He said, there is no way I'm going to go and stand in that pulpit this morning. Holy Spirit's here. He's going to do something. And so the pastor of the church, like almost every pastor, and like I probably would have, is sitting there because he can feel the people getting a little twitchy. Okay, what's going on? There's this pause. There's the, you know, the, 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 the um, service managers going, timesheet, timesheet, timesheet. Look, look, look. They want their lunch. And so the pastor gets up in the pulpit. He puts his hands on the pulpit. And he goes, and he starts to speak. The power of God fell like it did on the day of Pentecost. It split the pulpit from top to bottom like it did the veil in the temple. 
physically picked the pastor up and threw him across the stage so he looked like he was physically dead on the side of the stage. And for the next four hours, no one could stand, like it, like it describes in the Old Testament, no one could stand in the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. People were driving down the road, driving into the car park, coming in, meeting someone at the door, and they go, I have no idea why I'm here. They step across the threshold into the auditorium. Bang! Out by the power. Have a one-on-one, face-to-face encounter with Jesus Christ and get saved. For four straight hours... The visiting speaker, well, the visitor, he's still sitting in the front row going, I'm not moving, I'm not moving, I'm not moving. The elders of the church come and they said, what do we do with all these bodies? <laughs> Sounds terrible, doesn't it? We've got to make room. People are coming to the front of the church, getting their hearts right with God, repenting, receiving salvation, receiving the baptism. What do we do with all these bodies? It's like, <laughs> and the, so the guy goes, I'm not moving. And so they start picking them out and taking them. If I, I picture our, our, our complex in this while I was listening to it. They start taking them down to the classrooms. And this, it's like a triage unit. And uh, for four hours, four hours, I think your lunch would be burnt by then. <laughs> you know, I'm not suggesting that the Holy Spirit brings disorder or chaos. God is not the author of confusion, but too often the church tries to confine the Holy Spirit to Muslim, to constrain him, even shoot him with a tranquilizer gun just so that we can maintain control. Now, I know in that moment right now you're probably going, but doesn't the scripture say, do all things with decently and in order? You're quite right, it does. Let me take you to that scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 39 and 40 says this, therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid the speaking with tongues. Let all things be done decently and order and in order. That chapter is literally describing what a church service in, in Corinth was looking like because people were getting filled and they were wanting to speak in tongues, wanting to preach in tongues and just like it was, it was there. But Paul's saying, actually, when you speak in tongues, and this is a whole nother, nother sermon, but I'll give you it in 2.5 seconds, you edify yourself and you connect with God. Bang. But actually, if you want to get someone saved, you don't come up to them and go, they just go, medication. <laughs> but if you come up to someone and say, Lawrence, Holy Spirit spoke to me right now and told me that if you will say yes, you will live your wildest dreams in God. You have no idea. There's a verse in the Bible that says he can do more than you could even dare to imagine to ask of him. The things he has in store for you, they're for good, mate. They're filled with hope in a future, not disaster or chaos or evil. Ask him and say yes. That's for you right now. Who else wants another prophecy? See what happens? When you start to declare by the power of God, the atmosphere changes. So you need to go back and we need to look at this decently and in order from a biblical perspective. Decent is, comes from the Greek, eushimonos, uh, or something like that. I don't know how to say it. It's Greek, but it means honestly. In order comes from the word taxis. Greek, again, it means to arrangement in time, fixed ranking character to be done with official dignity and with biblical designation. So when we do things decently and on order, it's from a biblical perspective, meaning in accordance with the word of God, not in accordance with human designs and comfort. It means that God 
sets the order. Who gets preached? Jesus. Who gets magnified? Jesus. Who gets glorified? Jesus. Who sets the order of doing things? Jesus. Sometimes we're so concerned about being decently in order that we don't let anything get done. You know, one of the most riches, richest places in our community is also one of the areas that is most decently and in order. There are inventions, paintings, compositions, designs. There are companies that have never been realized, but it's, decently, it's decent and in order. You know where that is? The cemetery. Everything's in rows. It's all groomed and manicured. It's decent and in order. There's nothing living there. If the church is to be biblical, then the Word of God is alive and the Holy Spirit is welcome. That's the first reason. It's biblical. Second reason is the move of the Spirit helps us all. I've already just kind of touched on that. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 7, But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. What does manifestation mean? Manifestation means... It comes from the Greek, phanerosis. It means to the demonstration of, or the expression of, or the bestowment of. And profit, nothing to do with money. Profit is this, biblically, from the Greek again, the expedient bringing together for the collective advantage. Profit's not about me. It's about us. It's about you. You may have heard this phrase, a rising tide lifts every boat in the harbor. Ones that are ready to go to sea and ones that are not, but the tide still lifts them. When the power of the Holy Spirit fills this place, those who are on fire for the Messiah just get cranked up a little bit more. Those who are a little bit distant from God get drawn into His presence. Those who are without hope are in an atmosphere of hope. Those who are in a place where they need healing can live in the atmosphere of healing. Those who are lost can hear the Word of God and they can find their way. When the Spirit of God is moving, it is for the profit of all. So it's biblical. It's, it helps us all. The third reason is the move, of spirit, the move of the Spirit authenticates the gospel. Mark chapter 16, verse 20. And they went out and they preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through them, through accompanying signs, amen. I love how it just puts that word right on the end of that verse, Amen. Signs point to somewhere. Signs point to something or someone. When miracles happened, who do the signs point to? The miracle worker, Jesus. Confirming means to establish the gospel. Literally, confirming, establishing the gospel. Amen? Amen. I love that four-letter word. It's a four-letter word I'm happy to use. <laughs> Amen. That means yes. Yes. So let it be. Yes. Amen. That's why I love it when Ross unleashes during a, during a message. When a preacher makes a statement, he goes, Amen! Keep it up, bro. <laughs> I love it. So it's biblical. It's for all. It authenticates the gospel. The fourth reason is this. The move of the Spirit unlocks the power of God. Acts chapter 1. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will fill you with power and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 literally is fulfilled in Acts chapter 2, right through to Acts chapter 28. What happens? The very first thing, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. The disciples 
bust out of this room. People thought they were drunk. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. I can tell you I know exactly what that was like because that happened to me. I can tell that story some other time. But they get out there. They literally take it immediately out into Jerusalem. 3,000 people get saved. They get persecuted and it spreads to Samaria and the count goes up to 5,000. And then, then it goes to Ephesus, it goes to Corinth, it goes to Malta, it goes to Rome. You know, geographically, geographically from Jerusalem, the furthest geographic city from Jerusalem is called Christchurch. Christchurch, South Island, New Zealand. Even if you go south, from Christchurch, you are starting to get closer to Jerusalem because the earth is not flat. You know, the first America's Cup on the, on the Flat Earth Society happened, only half the fleet came back. But anyway, um, <laughs> sorry. Oh, Lord Jesus. Help me tame the turkey, Lord. Help me tame the turkey. The furthest capital city from Jerusalem is Wellington. And did you know in 14 days' time, on the 17th of July, the Pentecost Church, Pentecostal Church in New Zealand is 100 years old. This month in New Zealand. In May, um, on the, I think it was the 28th of May, I can't remember. Uh, anyway, it was May. In 1922, the world-renowned evangelist Smith Wigglesworth came to New Zealand and held meetings in the town hall in Wellington. And night after night, he preached under the power of the Holy Spirit. People got saved, healed, delivered. I mean, you go back and read the news articles that tipped the capital on its ear. And out of that, a church grew. And um, the first church was planted in uh, July... July the 17th, 1922 in New Zealand. And then it's just rolled on from there. And out of that church plant in 1922, it, it kind of it grew and then it shrunk and it grew and shrunk. And then in 1952, 1953, out of that church plant, the Elam Church was planted in New Zealand, in Wellington. And the second Elam Church that was planted out of the, that movement was here in Blenheim, us. We are part of one of the oldest denominations on the planet and our church is 100 years old this year. Well, not, you know, not this one. but So it's biblical. It's for the profit of all. It confirms the gospel. It unlocks the power of God. And the fifth one is it keeps us in unity with the early church. The early church grew exponentially throughout the book of Acts. If we were to have what the book happened in the book of Acts right now, we would call that revival. And actually quite right too, because it means the church is finally coming to get awake. And out of revival will come harvest. So when we as a church today come back to the true expression of Christianity on earth, it has to. Folks, I, just, I make no apology for this. It has to include the Holy Spirit. Would the worship team please come? The first Pentecostal church, the first, sorry, the first church was Pentecostal. The existing church has to be Pentecostal. How does this happen? And this is where, if you've just merely been entertained by what I've been preaching 
I want you to put the entertainment hat aside and now I want you to lean in because I need you to get what I'm about to share with you right now. Okay, so just ignore these guys getting ready because we are going to go into a time of worship. How does this happen? How does a church, regardless of its name or flavor, become Pentecostal? Well, it comes from total surrender to the Holy Spirit. When I say total surrender, that's exactly what I mean. I looked it up in the Greek, and total means total, complete. (laughs) No, I didn't look it up in the Greek. I'm just being naughty. Everything, your entire being, your dreams, your desires, your fears, your hopes, your anxieties, your worries, your joys, your marriage, your children, your job, your church, your ministry, your name, everything gets surrendered to the Holy Spirit. I just, just as I said that word name, I just really feel like there was some, someone joining us online today. And I pray this doesn't offend you. But you've been living on the power of your name. Your name has carried you. Your name has held you. Your name has directed you. And you have been wrestling with wanting more of God, more of the Holy Spirit. And I, I just, I'm, I'm here to tell you this morning, I don't know if this is the first time you've joined us online or not, but I'm here to tell you this morning that there is a name that is above every name. And his name is Jesus. And if you will surrender your name to him, you, there is no limit what God can do with you. I, I, I pray that that encourages you and doesn't offend you. But lean on the name that is above every name. His name is Jesus. What does the scripture say? 1 Corinthians 14, 39 says this, Forbid not. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 says, Quench not. Acts 7, 15, 51 sorry, says, Resist not. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1 says, Ignore not. Ephesians 4 verse 30 says, grieve not. After each and every one of those, it's the Holy Spirit. Forbid not the Holy Spirit. Quench not the Holy Spirit. Resist not the Holy Spirit. Ignore not the Holy Spirit. Grieve not the Holy Spirit. You know, in the Old Testament, the people rejected God the Father. In the New Testament, the people rejected God the Son. And in the church then on, they have rejected until now the, the God, the Holy Spirit. I want you to know, and I need, I need you to know, and I want the Holy Spirit, I want Holy Spirit, I want you to know you are most welcome here. I want to ask you a couple of questions. How important is the person of the Holy Spirit in your life? How important is His anointing, His moving, His word, His touch in your life? If you are genuinely hungry and genuinely prepared to surrender all as an offering to Him today, I want to tell you, He'll come. He'll come. He'll fill. He will flow and overflow your life. Would you bring yourself as an offering to Him today? Will you create an upper room for Him today?